You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. So my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is Dave Robinson, photographer, manager, co-founder of Stiff Records. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Bob, it's great to be here. Okay, Dave, you started out as a photographer? I started my career as a photographer in Dublin, Ireland, and did a lot of uh, different photographs of uh, various magazines. But eventually, I finished up taking photographs of poor musicians who had no money, but who needed photographs. And I dug out my wide-angle lens and started taking pictures of bands. How did you learn how to shoot photos? An old friend of my father's who uh, showed me pretty much how it worked. And I practiced on a load of children and people in Irish pubs, which is, uh, is an education in itself. And at what age did you start? I started at about 16. 16. Okay. What kind of family did you grow up in? What did your parents do for a living? My father was a sign writer. Uh, my mother was a housewife. And... Uh, it was a very normal Irish Catholic uh, family, two sisters. And uh, the only difference was my father decided that he could afford to send me to boarding school. So that was the difference between me and all my peers at the time. So where are you in the hierarchy of the three kids? I'm in the middle. And you went to boarding school at what age and what was that experience like? I went to boarding school when I was six. Six! <laughs> six. And that was a, a novel experience. Obviously, it's the only one I had. So I didn't have a way to compare it. But Ireland, uh, as you can imagine, in um, early years, Catholic nuns to begin with until I was 11. And then from 11, I went to secondary school and I had the uh, the priests to, to look after me. Um, obviously, they've had a bad press, <laughs> inevitably. And I, that's all I can say about them. But I had no problems. 
And I was a very experienced boarding school boy, so I knew what was happening and that I could avoid stuff and help my friends to avoid things that were going on. The Irish priests have had a terrible battering, quite rightly, and uh, it's not obviously an area where in the music business you um, you think about, but um, it was a, a very good education. It was a very good, from the academic point of view, it was an excellent education, and it's been the kind of confidence of my life to be able to uh, use that education to my advantage. Well, usually boarding school kids go to university. What about you? I didn't because I'd had enough of boarding school. When I got to 17, there was a, um, the school I went to was a very big rugby college. The rugby was a, was a huge uh, impetus to that school. Uh, and I played on the rugby team and I was good, uh, I think. And uh, it moved uh, mountains. You know, I got a very good status in the school for being on the team. But I fell out with the coach uh, for various behavioral reasons and decided that there wasn't a future in me finishing the last two years before I might go to university. But my father, in any event, had told me that he'd spent... Uh, He'd spent money on my education, but he, it was unlikely to be able to afford to send me to university. He thought I should get a job. Okay, but you skipped the last two years of what we call high school or secondary school? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so you stop going to school. What do you do? Well, you get a job as a photographer. In my, in my case, I, I had a hobby for photography. And I wondered whether I could make a living at it, whether I could uh, please my father that I would have a living uh, and that I could uh, show him what I could do. So I went and took pictures of everything that moved and eventually got a very good living and moved to England uh, when I was 18 to be a beach photographer for a company which is very well known called Butlins which was a holiday camp type uh, environment. And I was a beach photographer, also called a smudger. A smudger is a beach photographer who takes pictures of people, gets money off them, and they don't get the pictures till the following day. So it's, a, it's an art in itself. Why is it called smudger? I'm not entirely sure. I think because you're not great. Because you smudge it, <laughs> you you blur it. Uh, you're not you're not a uh, you know a, a fashion photographer or whatever else. I think it's a slightly derogatory term. So you're a beach photographer at a holiday camp. Holiday camps don't have a good reputation since Tommy and the reference there. <laughs> However, at a young age, one would think it was fun. But when you work at a place like that in the United States. You can have an existence, you can have fun, but you really can only keep your head barely above water. So was this something to kill time or were you making any money? Oh, I was making money because uh, I got a commission from the f photography that I did. In other words, I got a commission for everybody who paid to have their photograph the following day. So you could make a lot by working very hard. It was definitely um, income from work. Uh, I'll give you an example of something that that uh, I was just a young guy from uh, Ireland. I should have been 19. They only took 19-year-olds. So I was having to lower my voice and try and be <laughs> <laughs> try and be good. Um, 
But uh, a, a, a lady, a middle-aged lady, kept coming back to me for photographs, and I thought it's because I'm so good at what I did. It turned out that her husband was a wrestler who worked at the camp, and he told me he would kill me if I took another picture of his wife. So I had to jump into the bushes every time this woman came by. She obviously f- figured I was a good-looking Irish lad, but it was very dangerous. So I made good income for a season uh, by the seaside in England uh, at, a, at a holiday camp, which had an, a high proportion of young unaccompanied females. And so it was a revelation to me in a lot of different ways. Uh, Ireland is very, um, you know, uh, (laughs) conservative. So one good thing about it, Bob, was that uh, I met a lot of other photographers who did the season at the, the camp. So they would just come down for the three months, three, four months. And a lot of them had contacts with agencies and other magazines photography wise so i'm i networked quite a lot of very good jobs out of that particular um situation so how did you get from there into music from there i worked for a couple of agencies i was introduced to a couple of agencies which would use a photographer like a um a freelance operator in other words they would send me on a job uh they would tell me what they wanted out of it their main interest in life was to make sure that they they had the correct names left to right was one of their f- main features, and boy, my point of view it was good because I didn't have to um, I didn't have to develop the the film. I just sent it back to them, and they used it as they wish, and I got uh, paid per job, and that could be quite uh, that could be quite a good week. Uh, as it happened, I worked uh, for several magazines, uh, music magazines that they obviously were attached to, and uh, pop magazine and rave magazine. I ended up doing pictures of uh, quite a lot of the up-and-coming musicians on the British scene. Is that how you ended up shooting the Beatles? Yes, it is. Yes, I did a I did a job uh, where I went to Liverpool to film twelve groups. Uh, for for a, some situation they had. And I ended up uh, filming the Beatles at lunchtime in the cavern without really realizing how wonderful that was. Uh, most of the bands were playing. I did live shots of most of them, and most of them were playing the same song. So you had a situation where they were uh, playing a lot of Louisiana uh, tracks and most of the bands, including the Beatles, played Long Tall Sally, for example. I think about six of them play that song and several other covers that they were all involved in. So the scene in Liverpool was was musically a kind of Louisiana rhythm and blues uh, area. And I don't remember the Beatles being uh, that much better. Uh, I do remember Paul McCartney only insofar as he was very friendly. He was very chatty. He he knew a photographer was going to be useful. Uh, John Lennon was uh, pretty nondescript. He didn't uh, relate to me in any way. Uh, Paul did uh, chat me up, and subsequently 
over my career, I have uh, met him several times and we have a relationship. So, so it wasn't because of that time. It was something we could go back to and remind each other that we had connected at that time. Okay, so you're being a freelance guy, you're shooting these jobs. How do you move on beyond photography? Well, I went back to Ireland to show off to my parents that I was a happening event. I had, uh, there was a, there was a tailor in London called Sam Arcus. And Sam Arcus was the hippest tailor in London. So uh, I went to Sam and had him make two suits for me before I went back to impress my parents with the whole idea. I got back to, uh, I got back to Dublin and there was a space music congress going on. And my agency said, could you cover it? Even though you're on holiday, could you go in and cover that? Because we're short. Uh, that space medicine was a very early part of the space program. And I got on very well with the American uh, guys, doctors, who uh, had me uh, film all the Russians and I got on very well with the Russians who had me film all the Americans. <laughs> so, so, so I did very well out of that, uh, a week, a week's uh, conference in Dublin. And I started to get a lot of Irish work. And because I'd come from London, which in those days, very impressive to Irish people, I was, uh, I quickly got into the top layer of uh, photography in Dublin. I also had a, a motorized camera, which the Irish had not actually discovered. So uh, the the um, the union uh, complained about me because I was using this camera and taking more pictures than anybody else. But that's, a, that's another story. So I, I became quite a good photographer in Dublin. I made quite a lot of money and I decided to open a club because Dublin did not have any kind of beat clubs like London had, uh, the Two Eyes and the Marquee and various other things like that. I opened a club in Dublin and, of course, through the door came loads of groups whose equipment didn't work, who, just like you and I early on in this uh, interview, where nothing worked too well. And so uh, in through my door came Van Morrison one day when he, it turned out he had... Um, got rid of his manager, Phil Solomons, and because he found that his band was getting income from his publishing, and he didn't like that. And he came through the door. I had taken pictures of them way back in the kind of rave days, and so we knew each other. And he came and stayed at my flat because he wanted a manager. He wanted somebody to... He had no idea who else would handle him. And Van was, I've got to say, was... Throughout his life, he's been a constant. He's grumpy. He doesn't do things that you want him to do. And he was a terrible flatmate. He ruined my social life almost completely single-handedly. But every now and then, he would get up with a local band at the club and you would, with his harmonica, and you would see extraordinary things. The band would lift up two gears and be somebody that they couldn't do on their own. He was remarkable in that way. Bert Burns started calling and saying, you know, if you're looking after Van, I really need him to be in America. I, I said, I don't really look after him. I didn't feel I was a manager. I felt it was kind of a mate. 
So I persuaded Van to go to America and join Burt Burns, and I could get my flat back. Okay, usually a club is a money pit. I mean, now everything is computerized. Everybody uses credit cards. even harder to make money in a club. Where'd you get the money to open a club, and how was business financially? In Ireland, it was very primitive, very primitive. I had a seller. That probably, if I had a if I had a, a a fire license, which I didn't have, would probably have held about 150. On a good night, Saturday night, we had 900 people in that cellar, and <laughs> we didn't have a liquor license, but we had a we had Coke had just Coke and Fanta had just discovered the uh, the serum. A serum that you added with water and and it, with a gun you could fill a glass. I think it cost so little that you couldn't even calculate it. And we were selling it for obviously because the the club was running with condensation and very very hot. We were selling we were selling out with all the coke and Fanta we could imagine. We we did so well out of that club that it was remarkable because Ireland was very primitive about licensing. It wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't American. It wasn't London. It was, it was, you have a club. That's all right. As long as there's no problems, we're, we're happy with it. So it ran for about two years and it was, a, it was a magic. It was a magic uh, thing. We had English bands come over. We could afford to have Alex Harvey and various other bands come over, which was unique in Ireland. Nobody had that class of uh, music coming to their club. So we had queues around the block and very good. And I didn't take any photographs at all for <laughs> for that period. Okay, Van takes off to talk to Burt Burns. Where does that leave you? He said, to give him credit, he said, come with me. And I, I knew Van by this time. And I, <laughs> I knew he's not a fan of passengers. And I knew I'd be a passenger. I would have no idea how to do anything of the kind of stuff that he was going to get up to. So I passed quite honestly. So I passed and I, I, I wasn't unhappy with that arrangement. Van paid me back and, and maybe we'll cover that many years later at the Fillmore East when Bill Graham had Quicksilver Messenger Service, Van Morrison and my a group, an Irish group that I looked after called The Heir Apparent. And that's another story. No, well, just tell it. The music business, from my point of view, has always had a problem. You find a good songwriters, you find people who can play, you find people who are motivated, but they do not have a record company, a major record company with the major promotion income. The record company doesn't want you if you haven't got an agent, and the agent doesn't want you if you haven't got a record company. And that has is, is as sound today as it was then. So I had... Um, a brief uh, after the club, I managed this group who were then called the People. The lead guitar player was Henry McCulloch, who went on to be in the Grease Band, Joe Cocker, Wings, uh, and various other people. But he started off with a little Irish band called the People, which I looked after. I could see they were good. I could not. Uh, I t- took them to London, but I could not get anywhere with them. And my backer was a gentleman, a Canadian gentleman, who, who had five grand. That was his, that was his uh, investment, which didn't last very long. So I didn't have a, 
I didn't have a a, a large uh, <laughs> I didn't have a large chance of making things happen. So I hired a plane, an Aer Lingus plane, Irish Airlines, and I got a media friend to get 150 of the key media journalists, uh, music and otherwise, to board that plane. Uh, and to go, to, uh, I convinced Bill Graham by flying out to see him one <laughs> one morning and being in his office. I had met him on a on a uh, earlier American tours with Jimi Hendrix, and convinced him to put my band on to open for Van Morrison and Quicksilver Messenger Service at the Fillmore East. Um, inevitably, inevitably. Um, the the band were the band the American embassy would not give them a visa because they there was various interunion situations which didn't occur. The plane Aer Lingus seven oh seven crash landed at Shannon Airport in a sea of foam because their hydraulics had gone out over the British Channel. Uh, the journalists who saw the whole thing as a bit of a, uh, a jolly, as they call it. And of course, we had put an awful lot of substances on the plane, alcohol and others, and they had indulged quite heavily. They quite enjoyed the panic of the landing. And Aer Lingus, because uh, that's their way, um, to get another plane out would take three or four hours. So they opened a bar for the journalists. And so by the time the plane got back, it was uh, a very, very crashed out group of journalists who got on it and took off for New York. So the visas I managed to um, sort out through a Canadian gentleman. So we flew to Toronto. And although the although the uh, embassy there saw saw us as, as uh, non-bona fide uh, visa applicators because of the uh, London London thing, I managed to um, convince an uh, immigration lawyer to do me a favor. And in the meantime, I hired a small plane to take us over the Canadian border and land at Buffalo, New York. The lead guitar player of the band, suitably called Brinsley Schwartz, the bass player being Nick Lowe, uh, lost. He had never flown in a small plane before. His eardrums went out. His ears completely clogged up. He couldn't hear anything. And so the show in New York wasn't everything I had hoped for. So it was a, a huge chaos. Most of the journalists didn't go to the show. Bill Graham in those days, 20 minutes before a show, if your press didn't show up, he would sell the tickets. You remember him. Uh, so it was a, pretty much a disaster. Van Morrison was very friendly because I hadn't seen him for quite a few years. But uh, 10, 10 or 15 people from this plane actually saw the show. But everybody panned it big time. I have column inches that you have never seen before in your life, all saying death and damnation. And But everybody was talking about Brinsley Schwartz. And United Artists did a big record deal with me, and I managed to do a publishing deal while I was in the States. So that was my entree into being 
a, a kind of a manager stroke disaster uh, arranger. And out of that came Stiff Records at a later stage. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's go back a couple of years. Van goes to New York. Ultimately, the club closes. What's your next step? The next step was take the group, the people, to London. Uh, We'd reached the kind of top of Ireland. Ireland had a low ceiling in terms of groups. There wasn't wasn't a big record uh, scene or anything else. So you had to go to London. That was it. I took the band to London and I got them three gigs. An agent friend got them three gigs. The second one was a... London had just discovered the San Francisco happening affairs um 
you know, an acid, the acid idea was happening, but nobody was taking it in London, but they were putting on like they were in it. There was bubbles on the wall. There was psychedelia. Procol Harum were playing that night that we got a, a gig at, uh, it was called the Blarney Club in, in London and the Bonzo Dog Duda band. My band, the people, got, came on at four o'clock in the morning. Everyone was asleep. 150 people were passed out on the floor. Everyone else had gone home. And they got up and did their thing. They were very good. They were a very good rock and roll band. And a crowd of 150 people woke up and really had a good time. At the end of it, I got several uh, university uh, bookers trying to book the band. And they were offering me money. And this is what it was all about. We had we had a few gigs and here was a chance to break through. A gentleman in the corner with small John Lennon glasses um, <laughs> said, before you do everything else, you should talk to me. And I said, yeah, 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 no, no, I'll just talk to this guy. I'll get, I'll get to you in a minute. The promoter passed me by and he said, I would talk to him if I was you. I said, why? He said, that's Mike Jeffries, Jimi Hendrix manager. And I thought, ah, oh, Mike, Mike, <laughs> hello, how are you? And it turned out that Mike Jeffries had three clubs in Mallorca, island off the coast of Spain. The British and the Spanish were having an argument about Gibraltar, another argument. And so the Spanish had banned all English people from getting work permits in Spain in order to negotiate. Mike Jeffries had three clubs and no bands. So he had stayed all night because he heard that we were an Irish band. Now, what I didn't tell him, what I didn't tell him was that we weren't. We were a Northern Irish band. We were essentially a British band. They had British passports. He said, you are Irish. It's, it's Irish. I said, of course I'm Irish. No, you know, I'm Irish. So he booked us for his three clubs. I had to rush to Ireland and manage to get Irish passports. And the group didn't want them. The group did not want them because they were Northern Irish. And if you had an Irish passport, you'd be killed. That's what they told me. I said, well, don't show them to anybody. Put them, <laughs> you don't need, you get them to go to Mallorca. You're not going to Belfast. So off we took to Mallorca. Fantastic. Great club, um, great apartment, everybody getting money every week. Loads of girls on holiday. I mean, heaven to a degree, great weather. And then Chaz Chandler turned up. Now, Chaz, as, as we know, had formed a partnership with Mike Jeffries to manage Jimi Hendrix. And he came out on holiday. And, of course, he saw the band. Now, Chaz was just, Chaz a great, uh, ba you know, a really nice guy, a real musician, not a great bass player. He'd own up himself. But, but he liked looking and feeling with musicians. So he met my bunch, who were playing pretty good now. They're doing three sets a night. It's like Hamburg. I have three sets a night. They're putting in new covers. They're writing a bit of material. It's all happening. He likes them. He told me he wanted to sign them up. I mean, I could hardly, <laughs> I could hardly hear how wonderful that was. Chaz Chandler signed the people to his management company with Mike Jeffries. And I would be a third partner in the equation. They, they would own the major part. I would have a little part. So it was perfect. And uh, he would record us. He wanted to produce. 
It was just heaven. So back we go to London. Everything's really good. And the first gig we've got is with Jimi Hendrix. We're supporting Jimi Hendrix at a gig. It's unbelievable. It's not a script you could, you could write down. So then, um, we got on the tour with Jimmy, the Amen Corner, the Move, uh, the Nice, the Pink Floyd, uh, on a package tour. In those days, England had package tours where each, um, if you had a hit, you had one hit, you'd get on a package tour. And, and that group, um, the, was led by a, a group called the Outer Limits, who were the cousin of the promoter. They had no hits. I had now the, the people were now named by Mike Jeffrey's girlfriend, the heir apparent with E-I-R-E as the kind of, as a, as the hook, right? The group didn't like it because they were Northern Irish, but they put up with it. So, uh, we went on tour for the, each show was two and a half hours. We did matinees, did matinee in the afternoon. Jimi Hendrix had 20 minutes to play. The Pink Floyd had 12 and a half minutes to play. <laughs> <laughs> and they hated it. Everybody else got jollied around and had a great time. You know, the move spent a long time talking about venereal warts mainly. But, uh, but the Pink Floyd hated every moment of it. And they got their manager to get them a car so they wouldn't have to travel with the riffraff. You know, the other people. Jimmy was fine. He was quite happy to get on the bus with everybody. And it was a, it was a lot of fun, a great experience and a lot of fun. Then we got, um, we got uh, on other Jimi Hendrix shows. And the next thing, Chaz says, how do you feel about going to America? And I, how do I feel? I feel fantastic, Chaz. Just point me at it. So off we went with the soft machine and Jimi Hendrix experience to America. Again, uh, uh, it's like opening a door of the unbelievable. You could not imagine. I thought, this is success. This is success. They're also paying us very good money. I was getting $150 a week, which in those days, 1968, was 67, 68, was, was very good money when all your expenses were paid. You know, we were doing well. So that was the tour. Jerry Stickles, who is the, uh, <laughs> Jerry, Jerry was the, the tour manager and a rare, we, we were in a very interesting thing. I didn't realize it at the time, but the animals, them, Herman's Hermits and the Beatles had been to America. No other group from England really had been there. And we were uh, there making our own name. Jerry Stickles, a scaffolder from Folkestone in England, who got the job with the experience because he had a van and they needed one at the time, turned out to be one of the great touring guys. He turned out to be a real happening and a real resourceful guy because you had to be because there was no security. There was no criteria. There was no template that made the tour work. There was no anything. Most of the gigs had the local police chief who knew the promoter. He, he was the security, and he wasn't really out for the band, and particularly not Jimi Hendrix, who was slightly the wrong color for that for a lot of the gigs that we were doing. It was an amazing experience. The girls were extraordinarily good-looking. I mean, it was... And, and everywhere. They were everywhere. So the Aeropart were having a good time. Um, 
the group was going, well, Jerry Stickles had to go back to England for a month for um, for a medical for a medical procedure that that uh, he had. And I got a briefcase and a Beretta and I was told I'm the tour manager. So I became uh, for about six weeks the tour manager for the Jimi Hendrix experience on the road in America with no idea at all how really it went. Great experience. And I had a great time. Jimmy was a very nice guy. Um, you know, he was always trying to find out what's happening to the money. And I had to tell him that I didn't know what was happening. I put it into various banks in a company called Yumita. And, you know, sometimes I would go into a bank with three or four hundred thousand dollars and the guards would draw their guns when I opened my briefcase. There was no credit cards. Nobody had a credit card. It was all cash and nobody had a flight case. A lot of these martial equipment had no flight case. They had plastic covers. They were ripped to shreds by going down the, the, the luggage ramps. I mean, it was total amateur land. And I thought, but there must be, you know, there, there, these people obviously know what they're doing and, and there must be something going on here that makes sense. And the answer was there wasn't. The tour, the tour zigzagged all over the road, all over the country. Um, I think around that time, it was a 55 mile an hour speed limit because of the, because of the uh, gas uh, uh, problems. And, you know, everybody was on the CB trying to beat the, the, you know, and get to the next gig. It was an extraordinary time. And the band were, uh, Mitch was, um, you know, great drummer uh, that he was. He was also a pain in the arse because he wanted to be like Jimmy. I mean, Jimmy was so miles ahead of everything around him in terms of his playing ability. Um, Noel was very pragmatic and he just got on with stuff. He pulled me out of a swimming pool. I can't swim. And my band threw me into a swimming pool in, uh, I think, Tampa, Florida. Noel Tripping saw me at the bottom of the pool, you know, trying to trying to memorize any swimming manual that I'd ever seen in my life. And when he's six, you know, he's a very light man. And he got, jumped in and pulled me out. That was a, that was a, a lifesaver. Anyway, we did well and we toured and Jimmy produced the Air Parents album. Okay, before you get there, you know, you're talking about the old days. People don't realize the way it was when it was all in cash. And it was also difficult to get paid and difficult to get paid 100 cents on the dollar. Did you ever have to use the Beretta? I never did. I was very anti-guns, <clears throat> very anti-guns. It was in the bottom of my briefcase for ages. And... Um, I did from time to time hang out with some other tour managers. There was a tour manager who looked after the animals and he was a very fancy dresser. He was very sharp. He had a waistcoat and he carried a Beretta in his waistcoat, right? And he showed every, everyone would show the gun you had. They all had different guns. And, uh, so <laughs> he was in Atlanta, Florida and, uh, a black geezer, unfortunately, you know, alcohol, alcoholed up, said, give me that briefcase uh, after the show. So he, he pulled out the Beretta to show, to show whatever and fired miles away from the guy. He fired it. Well, it ricocheted off the wall and hit the guy in the leg. <laughs> right. So the guy is down, bleeding profusely. Black and white pulls up and they're congratulating 
they're congratulating my tour manager on his uh, acumen in killing or trying to kill, you know, locals. I mean, it's... It, America was very odd, Bob. You, you've you obviously been there forever, but the the bottom line is it was so racist. I, I didn't, I came from a racist country where, where Protestants and Catholics resented each other big time. And here I was in America. I thought John F. Kennedy, in my naivety, had solved all these kind of racial problems. I was totally astonished by uh, the racism. You know, I was amazed. I could not understand why somebody wasn't doing something. But it was everywhere. And Jimi Hendrix was a black guy in a white white, uh, uh, world to a degree because we were playing white gigs everywhere and there wasn't really an awful lot of our colored brethren uh, in the shows. So it was very, very interesting. The Vanilla Fudge, a good example of guns, is the Vanilla Fudge did um, a week or 10 days on the tour. They joined the tour. And I was told, it was a, during my time uh, touring, I was told that they would come and it would, uh, you know, they'd go on third and what would happen, etc. I was on the stage in, uh, I think, Jackson, Mississippi, and... Uh, this young dark guy in a silver suit in a in a shiny suit and and a very big man that was with him uh, came came up and said um uh i'm the manager of the vanilla fudge uh, our gear hasn't turned up um so we'll have to use yours and i said well i'll 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 ask the band it should be okay but i'll ask i'll ask the group whatever at which point the guy the big guy pulled the front of my shirt down and nearly knocked me over, but he literally pulled the front off. And when I looked up, I had a very big gun in my mouth, right? So I'm mumbling to him, you can use anything you like, you know, take it all. Uh, The following day, they gave me a small uh, envelope with uh, about five grand in it, which is more than I had seen for a while. I was asked to look after the band, and he'd been a little bit over, what was it, zealous, I think was the word he said. And uh, that was another part of American history from my point of view. It was was the Wild West, really, and uh, being in the music business with Jimi Hendrix at that stage was was a great introduction. Okay, so Jimmy agrees to produce the Air Apparent album. Yes, he did. He uh, he said to me, I'd like to produce them. What do you think? And I said, oh, no problem, Jimmy, no problem. Uh, they will love it. Uh, he said, fine. Now, he said, look, Dave, I, I want to tell you this, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm not great at timekeeping. He was, at this moment we were in L.A., and the tour had had slowed off for a week or two. It had just they'd been doing far too much. And he was in this house up on Mulholland, and it had I remember the bedroom had nothing but mirrors. The bedroom was a mirrored room. So he said to me, um, "I want to do this, Dave. I want so you're you're." Uh, I give you permission to come in my bedroom and get me out every day. I want to go to the studio and I want to be there at 10 o'clock. Okay. And it doesn't matter where I've been. You come and get me. I'll give you full permission to do this. So the very first night, the very, very first morning, you know, quarter to 10, 
I'm tapping on his door, knowing that he got in at seven or something. And uh, eventually I go in, Jimmy, Jimmy. And Jimmy is is in his bed in a mirrored room. And I, di- I didn't have my camera. A mirrored room with black sheets, black satin sheets, and a blonde girl on each side of him. They look like twins. <laughs> and they were a Scandinavian kind of couple who had he'd adopted. He loved... He loved blonde women. We all do. So I'm going, Jimmy, 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 and kind of shaking them, and there's no movement. So eventually, you know, I remembered what he told me, and I get, you know, tough and getting him out there. So getting him out, giving him coffee, and getting him to the studio became my job. And he did a remarkable, he, he was there every, pretty much every day, and and is the guitar player on an awful lot of the <laughs> he played down. He played down so he would sound like the guitar thing. It was fairly extraordinary. And um, uh, my Facebook page has a lovely picture of me and Jimi Hendrix in the studio making the Air Apparent album. But uh, a, a lovely guy like that, a lovely, a lovely genuine geezer. Aside from the extraordinary guitar playing, he got fed up with the with the kind of chitlin circuit stuff. That made his name. I mean, people just wanted the big stuff. They wanted the fancy, bite the guitar, play it behind your back, you know, use it as a phallic symbol, you know, do all of that thing. And and eventually he got a little cheese with that, as you would. But that was what made him happen in England and that transferred to America. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. 
Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. So the album is made. What are the next steps for you? Well, I would think at that point, we were on Buddha Records. There was a guy called Artie Rip. I remember, <laughs> remember, and Artie was, was good value for money talking, but he didn't do very much with the record. And eventually the band decided that they would get back to England and expose the album to in, in England. So a few decisions were made and we got back to England, at, at which point the band broke up. Henry McCulloch had got busted in Canada for marijuana possession and had been told that he would possibly he would possibly go to jail because they wanted to get musicians at that time getting somebody close to hendrix was was uh, a media uh thing so he jumped bail henry henry was advised by mike jeffrey's people to jump bail and uh and we got another guitar player out there who wasn't half the talent and when they got back to England, they broke up. That's when I got, found the £5,000 investor to start a management company with Brinsley Schwartz. So that connects to that uh, story when I would try and use all my experience that I'd gained in uh, two years in America and, and, would, and would finally you know, use it to, to find an English band and find a group that could conquer the world. So how do you meet Brinsley? I uh, put an ad in the Melody Maker. Band wanted, must have own equipment and van. <laughs> and they didn't. They lied to me. They didn't own the van and they didn't own the gear. But I saw in Nick Lowe, I have to say, I did see in Nick Lowe, he had a couple of songs that were a bit Crosby, Sins and Nash at the time, but he, um, he, he uh, had something and the band were good. The band were unusually uh, good, and I thought I could make something of them. The trip to America turned out not too well, but I had uh, got an ongoing deal with two albums firm from United Artists. And so that income, uh, the band um, joined together to live in one house together, like a commune. Yeah, so the group proceeded to do 300 gigs a year for four years and form a very big name for themselves in a low level kind of music musical area. Uh, their second album was called Despite It All, which is a, an apt title. And um, it was very, very good for four years, which is long enough for any group. If they don't make it, that's when the, uh, the seeds of dissent set in. And uh, I left to... Um, to put a studio together at the Hope and Anchor in Islington, a famous public house. 
and the band broke up. What was your thought in terms of building a studio? Well, I wanted a valve studio. I bought two uh, from Abbey Road. I bought two uh, J54s, I think they were called, Studer machines, which I was told were a part of the Abbey Road um, machines that the Beatles possibly had played on. Uh, I got the I got the desk out of uh, Decca that I was told what had uh, produced Knights in White Satin. And I set up a valve studio, eight track with two two machines together with one head and started recording at the Hope and Anchor. I put it, uh, I, it obviously went to the stage. So any music played on the stage was recordable by me. Uh, so the studio was going quite well. And um, I also booked, I booked the venue. So it was full all the time. Again, I, I did my favorite thing of having a very small 100, 100 licensed uh, club and putting 400 people in it. Uh, I had an alcohol license at this point as well. So that was good. Uh, and uh, a group called Flip City wanted to play and their manager was hustling me. And I put them on as support with a band called Kokomo. And they were terrible, but they had a guy, lead singer, who did a song called Third Rate Romance, Low Rent Rendezvous. And it turned out his name was Declan McManus. So I said to him, you got any uh, original songs? And he said, yeah, I've got a few. I said, well, I've got a studio upstairs. I've, I've just set it up. So I'll do some demos for you if you fancy doing a few. So he did 38 songs in the night. We finished at five in the morning and I gave him a tape of his 38 songs. And I thought he could be good. This guy could be useful. But I put the band on again a month or two later and they were still terrible. He was good, but they were really rubbish. So while I was there, I put on a lot of music. All the London music traveled through the Hope and Anchor pub, recorded by me. And out of that, I got the idea of Stiff Records. Also, Stiff Records was anti-major record label because they didn't care about anything except their, their money. The ideas that they liked, the kind of music that they sponsored, the kind of satin trousers and the high heel boots and the pink hairdos, I wasn't a big fan of, and it wasn't very good. That prog rock area wasn't my favorite. And um, because the pubs were now my interest and bands playing three-minute numbers with no solos, with, with happening, with a couple of covers in there from some really decent people became my interest. And they were the... Uh, I got the idea from there. I managed... Um, it wasn't, his name wasn't Elvis. I managed Declan. I managed Ian Dury. I managed uh, Nick Lowe, who come, came to me with my uh, partner at the time, Jake Riviera. And we started, the tapes from the Hope and Anchor became stuff we could release because it was all Graham Parker, I found. At that time, he came to me with a couple of songs that somebody said, Dave's got a studio. Why don't you go down there? Uh, I got him a deal with Phonogram, which was uh, it's the quickest deal I've ever, ever made. I did the demo on Monday 
On Friday, I gave it to a gentleman called Charlie Gillette, who was a great, unfortunately, he's passed on. He was a marvelous spotter and really nice guy and helpful, but also he could spot things. He discovered Dire Straits, a load of bands. And um, I gave it to him. He had a radio show on a Sunday. On He played the, the track Between You and Me. On Monday, I got a call from Nigel Grange, the head of A&R, at Phonogram, and on Tuesday, I had a deal sorted out, and we were doing the paperwork. Okay, let's slow down a couple of steps. A, who owns the Hope and Anchor? The Hope and Anchor is owned by a, a pub now called uh, Green King. It's owned by a, by a brewery. I mean, no, when you were there. Who owned it? It was owned by a brewery called Watney's. And it was, ru- it was run by a landlord who had a tenancy. In those days, the, the um, breweries owned all the pubs in different configurations, and they had tenants in to run them. And obviously, if you, um, if you hadn't got a big crowd in your pub, getting a music license and getting music into it was a way for you to sell more booze. So there was a landlord there called Fred Granger at the Hope and Anchor. He and I became partners in the studio. And where did the money come from? Across the bar. (laughs) Okay. And you have a studio. Who's doing the engineering and producing and all that stuff? Me, me. I built it. It took me a year to build it. I learned all about it. I had a couple of electronic guys come down and give me chores. They'd give me like your list, like your list of how to get this uh, recording going. They'd give me chores, and during the week, I would solder and do what they told me, and they'd come the following week and give me more. I could only afford to get them one day a week, not to do any work, just to tell me what to do. I had a very good sound. Uh, I had uh, Willie Mitchell, right? Right. I loved loved the sound of Willie Mitchell. I thought that was one of the great... England didn't have that sound. They had a, like a blanky snare drum. In, in, English bands were more theatrical than musical, I always thought. You know, I always thought the English liked the theater and they liked the theatricals. And so, so do a lot of other people. But, but that was the main thing in, in David Bowie, uh, Pete Townsend. I mean, Freddie, our Freddie. A queen, I mean, you know, I always thought he was a man chasing around, looking for the other end of his mic stand, you know, by and large. But th- that was the English thing. I loved the, the R&B, the rhythm and blues. And Willie Mitchell, uh, I, I had every drummer who came to the Hope and Anchor for any reason, I would kidnap, take him upstairs, and I had a drum kit set up, and I would get him to play the drum kit for as long as I could. I'd give him drink. I'd give him anything. So he kept playing on the drum kit while I fiddled to try and make the sound that was in my head, which was like high records, Al Green, that, that sound. So I, I thought, bugger it, I, can't, I couldn't do it. Nobody seemed to be able to. I wrote to Willie Mitchell. I wrote to him. I said, I was in studio. I love the sound, blah, blah. He wrote back to me with a mic set up, right, from Willie Mitchell. He wrote back, and all the mics were incredibly cheap. I had been going and trying to get expensive stuff and trying to make, and I, it was a valve sound. I, the early days of Tamla was all valve, I mean, obviously. So I, I went out and got all his microphones and put them in the, in the place that he said 
they should go, all the same mics. The next drummer who came in downstairs turned into Al Jackson. He sat at the drum kit, he played the drum kit, and he sounded like Al Jackson, my favorite drummer. And that was the Willie Mitchell drum sound. I've been using it ever since. And it came automatically. I didn't, you know, he told me a couple of EQs, but nothing dramatic. He just showed me the positioning of the mics. And that was pretty much what uh, Stiff Records is based around that kind of drum sound. I taught it to Nick Lowe then, and we made a whole uh, career out of it. Okay. Why'd you get involved with Jake Riviera? Was that good or bad? Jake Riviera was a, quite a smart geezer. Now, I'm not, I'm not blowing my own trumpet by saying that I was doing more things around the place in the Hope and Anchor than Jake was. Jake, Jake saw me in his, in his front vision. He could see me and he was following me around a little bit. He was stalking me a fraction. And one of, but he was very smart geezer, very, very witty, very sharp talker. And he got a job as tour manager on the very first Dr. Feelgood tour of America. And he went around there and he was very interested in record labels. He'd always had a, he'd always had a fascination of record labels, more than me. I mean, I was thinking of Warner Brothers and, and, and others. He was thinking of Modern and all the, the Brunswick and whatever. So he went around America with Feel Goods, and the Feel Goods loved small record labels and alcohol, two things they loved. So they went around all these small record labels in every town in America who were, the owners were dying off. You know, they'd lost their money or whatever. Anyway, all these things were becoming bankrupt, but they all had stocks of singles in the warehouse that the wife of the owner who died of a heart attack still had and didn't know what to do with. Jake came back from that tour and said to me, he said to me, Dave, I've got an idea. Let's start a small record label. You're taped from the Hope and Anchor, right? And my ideas about what we'll do, he used to work for an ad agency. He was very, very good uh, glib geezer. So, Fine. We got together, the two of us. I had a management company. I managed Declan McManus, uh, Ian Dury, various other people, Graham Parker. And we joined together. And the money came from the management company to start the record label. And Nick Lowe, we pressed 10,000. We did it in 500, 500s and sold them and then went on. There's a guy in England who was the genius of the independent record thing, John Peel. John Peel was the most extraordinary guy. God knows how he came up with his ideas, but he was a lovely guy and he really liked Stiff. So from our first record, So It Goes by Nick Lowe, he played it on the radio and we became something. And we hated major record companies with such a passion that we loved making them look bad. We loved doing it. There were five newspapers, five music papers on the street every week who needed input. They needed stuff. It's like the internet. They needed loads and loads. We invented, we, um, we, we would sit late at night thinking up schemes. I mean, we loved the record. We loved the major record companies being embarrassed. Dire Straits uh, had a, had a, their manager went to a marketing meeting at um, Phonogram and he was complaining that 
they were in a house bag. They were in a phonogram house bag, their new big hit. And Reckless Eric, a guy that nobody had ever heard of, had a four-color bag. And he brought it, it. All of that was made to measure because they had no sense of humor. They had no anything. They weren't very smart or talented. They were all pompous, black, black bloody BMWs. And it wasn't... You know, they, they couldn't keep up. So that's what our slogans, we lead, others follow and can't keep up. Surfing on the new wave, you know, tomorrow's sound today, where the sun never sets. We became the slogan company of thing, And our groups loved it. The groups loved it. It was like a family affair. It was everybody in it. Everybody laughing. The newspapers, every week, everyone bought all the music papers and read all of them. So all the, you know, we had journalists on the road. With, we called Elvis Costello, Declan McManus. I, you know, we said to him, we had a meeting with him and said, look, we're getting nowhere with this great album you've just made, right? And we're going to have to change your name. And he said, yeah, so what? So we're going to call you Elvis. And he didn't blink. The man did not blink. And his, Costello came from his um, his wife's um, uh, name, her her name, and he was great. Elvis was ready to promote. He'd come from a hard life working as a computer programmer, which is putting the putting the cards into the computer, and he um, he was great. And he pulled a lot of other people on as well. Okay, let's slow down and start with Elvis. You make the record. Couple of questions here. How does he end up making the record with Clover, a band from San Francisco, though in England at the time? And he ends up with CBS Records. Tell me the story there. Clover, band from Marin County. The pop music was was focused on a, a band who came from Marin County called Eggs Over Easy. I went to a pub in town to do a, do a deal with the landlord to get some of my bands in. And there was a group playing. There was only 10 people in the room. There was nobody in the room. I'm talking to the landlord. And this group is playing. And I'm listening in the back of my mind and thinking, what's that? No, that's interesting. I'm turning around and this four-piece band is playing, right? I talked to them. I said, what, who, what? It turns out that Chaz Chandler had been going to make an album of them for Polydor, but Polydor had, had um, changed their mind. So they'd come from Marin County. I based all these bands playing these short numbers and doing this kind of slightly um, rhythm and bluesy kind of songwriters. They've... Uh, vibe off them. I stole their idea. I'm still in touch with them. I'm, I'm good friends with them to this day. I got a whole load of English bands to play that kind of style, to do three sets, to do three sets in a pub, to learn the game, to know what they're about, to put your songs in, put a cover in, keep the audience happy. It's a pub. The majors didn't want to know. They sent a few people down to look at it because there was quite a lot of people starting to go and said, oh, there's nothing happening here. It's just, it's just pub rock, right? That's what, that's what they said. So Clover had been a favorite of Brinsley Schwartz. When they lived together in the house, 
I had found this uh, album by Clover. I'd given it to Nick Lowe, who loved the music on it, and he was a big Clover fan. When we decided to have a management company, Jake and I, and start the record company, we thought, who is there in America that we could get some use out of? And we thought, what about that band Clover? So I went over, he and I went over, and we chatted up Clover. Harmonica player Huey Lewis, but nobody was paying any attention to the harmonica player. John McPhee was the guitar player, and they had long hair, and they wore belts with conchos, and they had black leather waistcoats, and they looked fantastic. Cowboy boots, they had the look. Long hair, they looked like Thin Lizzy to a degree. You know, girls really liked them in Marin County. And I said, come to England, come to England. They vacillated. They never came. We talked to them. They never came. Come on, come over. You'll have a good time. The day they got on the plane by themselves to come to England was the day that Johnny Rotten said, fuck you, to a geezer on primetime television in England. Right? Punk came roaring out of the shed as the day this wild bunch of 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 um, Wyatt Earp, gunfight of the OK Canal-looking group turned up in, in England. Bad timing. We did everything with it. We got them a record deal. We did everything. They've toured with Thin Lizzy. That was a very big part of it. We got everything going for them. Nothing worked. They were having a good time. They were hanging out with musicians. They were playing. They were going to the key clubs. Girls loved them. They were on every tour we could get them onto, and Jake and I were very persuasive, and nothing happened. So eventually, Elvis had these songs, and there was nobody around with his kind of little style. He had a little guitar style, except Clover. So Clover played. No, Huey didn't. There's no harmonica on the album. But uh, Clover played. John McPhee playing oh, that great solo on Allison. But, but the British public didn't take to them. They didn't take to this. So we changed Elvis's name. And I got him to play at the CBS convention, which was in a hotel on Park Lane, right in the middle of London, in the hotspot. And um, there was a convention in the hotel. So I got Elvis down there with a little amp playing in his funny clothes from his album cover sleeve. And I said, whatever happens, don't stop playing. Right, L, we called him L at this point. L, don't stop playing. They'll notice you. They'll notice your song. They'll know who the fuck is that out there. Excuse my language. But, but um, so he's playing away. And I said, no matter what happens, police-wise, you'll get the police, keep playing. So he's there playing, and he wouldn't stop. And, and they said, move along, move along. Will you stop that? If you don't stop that, I'll arrest you, blah, 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 blah. So they arrest him. He's still playing as they put him into the back of their wagon, right? So he goes to, he doesn't know what to do now. He gets the police to call Stiff Records, and I answer the phone. We've only got a staff of three, so one of us, and to the phone. And they said, uh, we've, got a, we've got a guy here called Elvis Costello. He says he works for you. I said, I've never heard of him. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I have a friend 
on ITV News, which is the, the commercial news station. And I say, look, I've got this guy. He's been, he's been arrested. They keep him in, right? I said, he's been arrested. This is a really good story. And he said, nah, it's not enough of an angle, Dave. You know, I can't, you know, there's no way you can get this on news. The following day, what happens in England, if you're, if you're overnight in the cells, you go to Bow Street Magistrates, Straits Court. And Bow Street Magistrates is, is the old Bailey. It's, it's a traditional English, how they dealt with English miscreants. And he gets fined 20 pounds. I'm bound over to keep the peace. That's the term. You're bound over to keep the peace. 20 quid. My ITV man is now outside. This is a story. 20 quid. Elvis Costello, whatever. He was on the news twice that day. And the following day, we shipped about 5,000 albums. There was record shops on the phone saying, who is this guy? Elvis Costello, blah, blah, blah. Clover is a background band. That was the start of My Aim is True. And that was the story of Elvis Costello. Okay. I only know in the U.S. when it came out on Columbia. Columbia, yeah. In the U.K., was it out on Stiff? Of course. Of course it was. Stiff Stiff designed it all. But we were in the middle. Jake Riviera and Dave Robinson were in the middle of doing a Stiff deal for CBS, for Columbia, to sign the whole label now we were going to get what we had deserved all this time. We were now going to get a big machine in America behind us to go. That's when Jake jumped ship. Everyone said, why did Jake jump ship? Well, that's the reason Jake jumped ship, is there was a big income. There was half a million dollars on the table, and they had to have Elvis. They loved Elvis. Why? From, from the story of the Park Lane Hotel. They had all seen him, that the story, the, the legend of that particular thing and the album that he just made became the fulcrum of the whole situation. And Jake left. Jake saw his chance to get out from under my shadow or whatever and left. And it was a very, unu- I had not foreseen any second of it. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. 
I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, you know, what's that, 78 that my aim is? 78, yeah. Right, my aim is true comes out. So just when you make the deal with CBS is just when Jake leaves? Yes. So at this point, because in America everything is delayed, but that was the first hit stiff record and everything came after that, Ian Dury, et cetera. Oh, yeah. Oh, Elvis was the business. Elvis was the business. And that all culminated in all that kind of effort and that kind of promotion and that kind of snappy, you know, who gives a fuck kind of attitude all culminated then in that. Jake leaves. Do you give him half of the 500000 No, he has all of it. I gave him Elvis Costello. I said, Jake, you'll need some income. Take Elvis. Go on. But it's Friday. I want a settlement complete, signed by you by Monday morning, first thing. Otherwise, you don't get Elvis. I want it now. We're going to go to the house of my lawyer, your lawyer as well, our lawyer, and we are going to have a settlement because I realized that if we didn't settle quickly, we're both very, very uppity geezers, right? We would never settle. Do you know what I mean? We'd never get set. Also, I spent the weekend looking through our accounts. The accountant of the company, the bookkeeper, was a Jake appointee. I went downstairs when Jake said he was leaving. I looked in this man's desk. I found drawers upon drawers of receipts, untouched receipts, unformulated receipts. Right? I spent the weekend finding we owed 150 grand. Right, which we didn't have. Hundred and fifty thousand we owed that hadn't been paid. Right, but but we had forty grand in the bank. We were cash rich if if creditor large, right? So I decided to spend the forty grand on Ian Jury. I thought my aim is true, great, but the day is gone. Elvis is probably going to go with Jake. He was a Jake Jake went out of his way to be friendly to Elvis. And Elvis is a good bloke. You know, I still talk to him. We have a really good time, with whatever. But I thought Ian Dury's New Boots and Panties was the record 
that would really set up stiff at the time. Okay, let's slow down. Let's slow down. Yeah. Okay, so you have Elvis. You make the deal with CBS for distribution. 500K, they're going to distribute all stiff product around the world in England too? No, no. It was just the USA and Canada, North America okay. only. So you have UK, right? Stiff had it everywhere else. Okay. And Jake walks with Elvis. Yes. Who only has one album at this point in time. And you also give him the 500K to go away. Yes. Because you thought that what you had left was worth more than that. I thought that we could survive. We had more artists. Jake at, Jake at this point had also started getting quite argumentative about what bands he liked and what bands I liked. We, we had, we, there was a schism that had started. It wasn't a big number. But I was aware that it was going to come to a fruition, come to a head at some point. But I didn't think he was just going to skip. That half a million would have set us up in America. We might have done a chrysalis. We might have, uh, you know, one person in America, one person in England. But I had belief in the label to survive. And he, he thought by him leaving, it wouldn't survive. Was that always his goal to leave or was he trying to say, I will leave so that you give him the business? No, we weren't. We weren't. Bob, you you uh, have a great eye for the business, etc. We were too kind of quite idealistic. Although there was money lying around, we were we were not uh, moved. I think Jake saw that that half a mil was going to set him up separately. And I could see that. Right. But our attitude was not primarily money. We did talk music and we got a, an agreement between us by Monday uh, to settle. He went and I had a paperwork with all the shares and all the business. If I could make it work for myself, I got everything and he went off to do whatever he wanted to do. He had money. But the other thing about Jake is he, he has excessive taste. And I was quite happy that he should go, and I paid for it. Okay, so he goes, and the next step is the Ian Dury album? It is. Okay, at this point, how many acts are signed to Stiff when Jake leaves? Probably about five. Okay, so you're the one who builds this big roster. Yes. Okay, so Ian Dury comes out, you know, hit me with your rhythm stick, wake up, make love to me. Does that meet your expectations? What a waste. That great single. Yes. Yes, I thought Ian Dury, I had managed Ian Dury. He'd been signed to uh, my management company before Jake entered the picture, right? Ian Dury was signed to Advancedale with Declan McManus, with Graham Parker, and with a few other people at that time. So I thought the Ian Dury album was ripe, was ripe for uh, your, and... And if if nothing else down the road, possibly America, but it would have to be it would have to come from England. It would have to be a swell because he incoherent. A lot of his stuff was very incoherent to the American market. What happens to the hundred odd K that you owe? We had 40 grand in cash. I spent it on ads for Ian Dury, right? Ian Dury, we had some great ads. Give up smoking. Give us your money. We had don't fart before your arse is ready. <laughs> I mean, we had some ads that really, you know, double page ads in everyone's face. And people had to hear this album. And then he came up with the singles. Him and Chaz Jankel came up with the singles uh, on top of the album. 
incredible stuff. And Ian, Ian was a 33-year-old cripple who, who had never kind of got out. He never really got going. And I thought he had the business. Uh, so as it proved, he sold records right across Europe. Uh, my aim is true, did well, uh, but he was bigger in America. Elvis was made for America, and he was bigger in America. Now, we had an attitude about the U.S. market. Jake and I had an attitude, which is no matter how, what you think you're going to get, you're going to get 10% if you're lucky. That was the attitude, because record companies, by their very nature, want to give you something to get you, but once they have you, they want to claw it all back as much as possible. That's what the major did. Claw it all back. We, we wanted back packaging deductions, all the things that they can get. So we bided our time, and eventually we did a deal for Stiff with Arista. Clive and I got on well. I thought he was very much a pop guy. He had total control of his company, and that was where we headed for once we got Ian going in the UK. Okay. Ian, certainly, I mean, I'm in Los Angeles. He gets played on K-Rock, but you get Ian on the way, and then where do you go from there? Well, Ian and Lena Lovich. Lena Lovich was an un unheralded young lady, and her lucky number, which went to number two in the UK, um, at, at a certain time, we could have done a deal with Epic or Columbia, pro mainly Epic because Elvis was on Columbia. And, uh, but Arista looked good, and they did pay us a, a, a big advance. And they looked good because Clive wanted some kind of credibility. He wanted to be seen that he had a edgy. He liked the edginess of Stiff, and he was going to he was going to do the business. He was going to make it all happen big time. So he paid to put Ian on tour with. Um, now there's where Alzheimer's is setting in. Um, the Vanilla Foot. No. <laughs> anyway, uh, he will come back to me. He went on tour in America, Ian, and Lena went on tour in America. And their two uh, singles, Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick and Lucky Number, were going up the chart with the bullets required. We were starting to look like we could turn out hits, right? Stiff. So Clive came down to the bottom line. Uh, Ian Dury played three nights at the bottom line at the end of this big club tour. You know, the whiskey, that kind of, you know, hip club tour. The single was 75, Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick, and I think Lucky Number was 85 or something. It looking very good. <clears throat> so Clive came down at the end of the show with a boyfriend and uh, a cameraman and said, look, Dave, I'm just, going to, I'm just going to go in. I've been doing something else, but I'm just going to go in and do the caught in the act picture. Do you remember that picture in Billboard? Every week, yeah. Do you remember the? Yeah. So he was going to be executive meets group at bottom line. Now, I said to him, I said, Clive, you won't be able to rush in there. The band occasionally have a bit of a row, and it's a very small dressing room. And Ian will be very sweaty. He's very, very 
disabled and it takes them a while to get dressed and get his brain together after a set or they might have a row i've been going i went in there once where they were punching each other out anyway clive said no no dave i do this all the time don't worry about it i you know i, I know how to do it ian had a guy called cosmo vinyl who was his mouthpiece cosmo went on to uh, look after the clash he was the mouthpiece and he was fascinated by Clive Davis. He thought Clive Davis's clothes were interesting. He was fascinated. He was in the dressing room. I'm saying to Clive, don't do it, Clive. I'm against the door. Don't do it. He's saying, Dave, it's easy. I do this all the time. So I said, okay, in you go, Clive. Clive hates being touched. Cosmo was down his jacket looking at the label of his clothes. Cosmo was all over him, handling him. Right, not not vi- not violently, but but you know, in his space, completely in his space. Clive, if you ever see the picture, he doesn't look too well. The following day, Elliot Goldman, Elliot Goldman, Clive's business partner, calls me in to the office in New York, and he says, um, "So I think it's a romance. I think it's you know he's going to talk to me about how the records are doing." and what needs to be done and whatever, you know, Elliot's going to talk business. And Elliot says to me, we're withdrawing all the promotion on your records. And I said, sorry, sorry, I, I thought it was a joke. I thought it was a joke. I said, what's, ha- what's happening? He said, Clive was manhandled by your staff last night, and I'm pulling the whole deal. There's no promotion going on. I said, don't be ridiculous, you know, Elliot. <laughs> you know, it's just rock and roll, a little bit of rock and roll. I told Clive not to go in, but he wanted to do it. He's an adult. It's up to him. You know, it's not my problem. They're not my staff. If you're going to go in groups, dressing rooms, you better know that the group can bite, you know, so you better go and do that. He says, it's not happening, Dave. We're. I said, well, then I want to leave. I want to leave now. I want to leave this instant. You know, you're breaking the, you're breaking the contract. It's a big breach. Anyone, any lawyer will tell you, any judge will tell you, you can't just pull out of this because of a little contretemps over your bloody jacket. So he said, I'm doing some figures. I'll let you have them tomorrow. But if you want out, you'll have to buy your way out. And the following day, he gave me a bill for $900,000. Right. And the other thing he said to me, Bob, which is an interesting comment, he said, what you, what you need to discover about the American industry, record business, is this. I'm going to fuck you now. And if you survive, you might get to fuck me later. <laughs> so <laughs> that was it. Now, I was totally stuck. I was totally stuck. I didn't have that money. I didn't have anything. That money had been spent on various other, uh, quite a bit of it, on various other things that were going on. So I had to go to Bruce Lumville at Epic and say, Bruce, I should have taken your deal. Those fucking idiots at Arista, I can't understand them, but I need to take your deal and I need an advance of $900,000. And he gave it to me. Bruce Lumber was a lovely fucking geezer in more ways than one. So now you're on Epic. <laughs> You've moved along very swiftly there. Yeah, go on. Bob. Right. Well, good sailing after that? Yeah, it was pretty good. 
if you would think about it, it it was they decided, which was rather nice, that they would put it on Epic Stiff. So there was a label called Epic Stiff, and we put a lot of stuff out. But the momentum for the two biggest records that we had was gone. By the time we got all the parts and other bits from Arista, it was a couple of months, and the records had had long gone, unfortunately. And they were our two biggest shots. So we put out quite a bit on on Epic, and we had a very good relationship with them. And Bruce Lumville was a really nice guy, and there was a lot of really good staff there who I'm still in touch with. But our our we we had we had missed the boat, we had missed the boat with that situation, and and that was uh, that was the way that went. I mean, in England, I signed Madness very soon after, right? And that was one of the biggest that was one of the biggest things around the world, except for America. Uh, although we, our house was a big hit in um, on Sire. In the U.S., Sire had them for the U.S. anyway. The deal we made was Seymour and I got persuaded the band one to sign. I, I auditioned the band at my wedding, so my wife has never quite given me. <laughs> <laughs> and Seymour got them for America, and our house was a big hit. But he didn't quite know what to do with them. They're a rowdy bunch, and uh, they're still going now, and probably bigger now than they've ever been. It's extraordinary the success of Madness. And what about all the other acts you signed? Well, all the acts that I signed, Lena, the Pogues, Shane McGowan and the Pogues, they're all, they all did well. About 75% of Stiff's signings broke even at least and made money. Because also, the, the label taught them a culture of not spending their money, of looking after it a bit, of being a little bit sensible when it came to the money. We had Devo. I mean, Devo was great fun. We, we put out Devo's big records at the time. They were very funny because they, 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 Jerry Cassells was so, he's such a whinger. You know, <laughs> he whinged and whinged and whinged. He hated, we put him in a small hotel. He'd whinge, whinge, whinge. People think that the, the, the record industry is not just a job. They seem to think that it's some kind of romance. And you have to say to people, look, this is how it works. This is what it's about. There will come a day when did you did you put your money in the bank? Did you buy yourself a house and you've got something for it? You know, a pub. So uh, that that was the essence. My mistake, Bob, was uh, Ireland. Before you get to Ireland, I have to ask you about a couple of these records. <laughs> One, and I saw the act at the Whiskey. How does Rachel Sweet end up at Stiff? Rachel Sweet came from D- a Devo situation. I was in New York and I played Chris Blackwell, Satisfaction by Devo. And he almost exploded. He couldn't believe, like I couldn't, that they'd come up with this version of this song. I mean, it was extraordinary. I loved, I loved all the rest of their song, but that was extraordinary. And I, he said to me, we're in New York, and I think New, New York was quite warm. I remember being in a T-shirt, and he said to me, so, so what are you doing now, Dave? What's, what's happening? I said, I'm going to Akron. I'm going to Akron, Ohio, to sign Devo. He said, what? He said, I'll come with you. So... <laughs> 
we we uh, we had a friendship at that point, you know, uh, such as, but we didn't have a business arrangement. So he and I went to Akron, and it was the biggest blizzard in the history of Akron, <laughs> right? And we were both in t-shirts. We just got on a plane. He was in sandals. So we we tied ourselves up in a motel, and the band and all the band, the word went out that Chris Blackwell and Dave Robinson, probably Chris Blackwell was in town and all the bands tobogganed to this motel. They all came. None of them great, none of them. A guy called Liam Sternberg, who wrote Walk Like an Egyptian, came from out of the blue. He came and he had various connections. And I got the idea. I got Devo to, they wouldn't sign a deal with me, but they signed the the three singles with me because they they had Virgin and Warner Brothers on tap and Jerry Casales was going to make a fortune. So I left him too and I said, I'll put out your singles and then that'll make them want to have you, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Blackwell went back to town and Jerry Liam Sternberg brought all these bands, one of which was Rachel Sweet, Jane Eyre, uh, various other. And I got the idea of Akron was kind of Going downhill, it had been the tire factory. The, the the it had been a huge place. It also smelt of rubber. It smelt of a lot of rubber. So I came up maybe maybe in an alcohol uh, driven evening with the idea that I would put out an Akron album, right? Of these bands, whatever they. I said to Sternberg, "You get a track by each of them, put it on the album." I want to try out a thing called scratch and sniff. So we'll put the, the smell of rubber that you scratched on on thing and it gave you that kind of thing and that was the essence of Akron. So I got that idea <laughs> there and then in a blizzard in Akron and we put out with Alba and Rachel Sweet came with it. And she was a very interesting little 15-year-old. She was very gung-ho. Her mother had just died. And and she, uh, but she was very driven and very very interesting. And I had this song, baby. I had that what, that song, baby, was hanging around somewhere in my thing. So we did it with her. Her father, Dick Sweet, was um, you know a nice man, bathroom bathroom salesman, bathroom. And the mother had just died, so he was kind of clinging to his fifteen year old daughter and her sister, who was seventeen. So it was it was kind of a very odd emotional thing. I felt for them, but there's nothing I could do. I'm just running a record company. So we put her on I decided to put her on the next tour. Um Dick Dick thought that rock and roll was where you you sang louder at the microphone. That was that was, that was his essence of of thing. Down the road after a couple of tours and she did very well. She's very articulate. She's now um I believe a TV producer. She she's got a, a a career in that area. Arma Anden at one of the Sony companies really liked Rachel Sweet, and he was hustling me to get a, a license for America. <clears throat> and I said, "Look, Arma, I had now had an experience of Dick Sweet close up for several months, and it was difficult." Right, and he's the father, and you can—he doesn't know what he's doing, but he wants to be the manager and whatever. She's very nice, 
Rachel. So Arma, I said, Arma, I'll tell you what. You, let's do a deal. You can buy her whole contract. You can buy the whole contract. And, um, you know, she, she wants, she and her father want to have an American label. Stiff doesn't suit them. They're very straight and they want to be in an American. So you buy the whole contract. Forget just America. And so he did. He bought the contract. And I kept Dick Sweet away from him till, he, till the check uh, went through the bank. And then I said, Arma, meet the manager, Dick Sweet. And Arma, about a year later, said, you wanker, you complete, you, you should be banned from this business for doing that to me. We still get on, so... Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink that's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, there's the full story of Rachel Sweet. So tell us about the mistake of making your deal with Ireland. Chris Blackwell kept hustling me at the back end of 83. We had Madness, really good. We had Tracy Ullman, really good. We had 
the uh, no, we didn't have the Pogues at the time, but we had a good business, and I had money in the bank, and we had a good turnover, and we were doing very well. And Blackwell is on the phone saying, why don't you come, Dave? I'll buy half your company, and you come and run Ireland. And I said, no, no. I generally said, no, no, Chris, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to do that. You know, I, I like things the way they are. We're doing well. I've got some new stuff for next year. Uh, and uh, so he kept on and on. And eventually he offered me $2 million for half of Stiff. He would buy half. We had various discussions. We also, he said, I'm going to sell Ireland in three years. Why don't we put the two companies together? One pop, one pop interesting, one island traditional with a catalogue. And why don't we get rid of it? And he gave me a very, very big, for the sale, I was going to get a very big override, very big. Okay, but I would work both companies. So I talked to the wife and, and she said, well, Dave, you know, how long do these things last? It's an opportunity. You may as well. You're only giving away half and you've got the opportunity of building some more and uh, and maybe you can make a bigger day down the road. So I did it. And the first month I got in there, they had no money. They were broke. I lent them money, a million dollars, stiff lent Ireland to pay its salaries for two months. So I looked into Ireland completely from beginning to end, right? And I found that, A, it had a license in America. It hadn't paid any royalties to the UK company for ages. And it had a license with Atlantic. And it had 70 staff on a license. The license was not huge. It was decent. But there's no way you run 70 people on a license of a company that, whose day is kind of done. You're going to have to revitalize. And because it's financially stuck, the people through the door, Bob, usually are artist managers. When, when a new person comes in town, the artist manager come because they want to know if you're going to tour them, if you're going to support them. If you, that's what normally happens. I had nothing but creditors right? Creditors through the thing saying, Dave, are you going to be able to turn this around because my bill is really high? And they're the same people who are manufacturing for me. You know, they're, they're similar. I said, no, I think we can. So I was in New York, December 1983, and I saw a 12-inch. Now, I, Trevor Horn and I had known each other for a long time. And I was aware of Frankie Goes to Hollywood because they were quite outrageous. It's quite outrageous carry-on, their record. And I said, um, I became aware, so I was watching them, and they'd, they'd stalled in the British chart, 65, something like that. But I was in New York, and I saw this 12-inch that said, Sex Mix, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. I thought, oh, that's, <laughs> I didn't know about that. That's amazing. So we need to push this band on quickly. They've got a chance. This record is quite good. Actually, it's quite extraordinary, but it's not going anywhere. So I called somebody in New York. I found out who was the production manager. And I, I don't want to start like I'm blowing my trumpet, but inevitably you kind of do. 
And I said to him, I need 5,000 of those 12 inches across to the UK in a, in a few days, right? Can you, can you deliver? And he said, who are you? I don't know who you are. No, I don't think I can deliver. Capacity is blah, 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 blah. And they gave me a load of wellies. So I called Blackwell. I said, Blackwell, I'm not going to do this job if I don't get 5,000 of those things on, on Saturday morning, right? And I want that geezer to fucking deliver to them, right? So I got them. And we spread it out over Christmas, the sex mix, the 12-inch, and the record zoomed from 65 to 32 and got on top of the pops. Now, you know, top of the pops, that is, that is where you want to get in this world in the UK in 1984. We got on top of the pops. The band played with no arse in their trousers. They wore those kind of chaps, those kind of gay chaps that, that, uh, whatever. They got, the, the guy at the BBC freaked out completely. And, of course, the entire public went maniacal. Next thing, it goes to number six. So, 65, 32, number six, although the guy is saying, I'll never have an act on Top of the Pops forever. Number six, and that day, a guy called Mike Reed, who is the breakfast DJ on Radio 1, biggest radio station in the UK, plays a little bit of the record, pulls it off the needle, and throws it at the wall. So there's this big splatter. There's this big splatter. Whatever. Everyone's going, what's happening? Because everybody listens to that breakfast show. And then I get the head of the BBC said, Dave, we are, we're banning it. I said, how can you ban it? You've been playing it for three months. Not a lot, but enough. What's the problem? He said, it's all about ejaculation. I said, is I said, most of the, the chart, most, I could describe ejaculation to most of the chart. What are you talking about? This is the rock and roll business. I said, the least you could do is tell the press why you're banning it. He said, I, he said, I will. I said, well, I've got to, I could get a press reception for this afternoon. He said, okay, I'll address them. He told the assembled press, we had, uh, I think, 78 people in that room. That it was all about ejaculation. We we couldn't press the record. We couldn't get pressing. And then I found that you could change the track two or three times, and and everybody wanted the next version of the ejaculation record. We sold I don't know three and a half million in the UK. It was number one forever. It was you know we had the T-shirt then. Relax, don't do it. I mean it was a, a script you could not write. And Ted Beston, God bless him, the head of the BBC, was the man who did it all by himself. So we sorted that out. Chris Blackwell now has got a little cash flow. We're cash flowing, right? And the next thing is the Bob Marley record. Chris said, I'd like you to do a Bob Marley, a greatest hit, Dave. We haven't done one before, but I think you're the right man to do it. And I said, well... Yeah, I like really like Bob Marley. I've got an idea on how that goes. He said, well, I've got the cover done and I've got the running order. And I said, well, then let's have a look. So he had a look. at. I said, I wouldn't use that cover and I wouldn't use that running order. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, what's the point of, the, of wasting time? That's not the one, okay? And there's no point in two of us fighting about it. You do it. You do it. You've got the ideas, so you do it. So eventually he agreed. I said, I'm not going to do it with you. I'm not going to do it with anybody. I'll, I will do it. 
and and I have an idea that that will work. So the idea, bottom line, was to sell it to the white people. That's all. I said, the man is a genius. The man has got songs that are unbelievable, but the man is provocative. And all the pictures you've used of him, he's wearing camouflage clothes. He's wearing military clothes. People in England and around the world think he doesn't like white people. He does. But it, it, the pictures that you've used to describe him, I wouldn't have it. So that's where we, that's where we drew the line. And... Uh, you know, the rest is kind of history. So how did it end? That solved the, that solved the cash flow. That solved the cash flow. I did some TV on U2, but most of Ireland's bands were leaving at that point. Robert Palmer was going, Stevie Winwood was going, because they hadn't been paid royalties. So how did it end with you and Ireland? Very badly, very badly, because the following... I put a lot of effort into Ireland because of the arrangement that Blackwell and I had uh, that isn't what he thought was going on, or his people. He wasn't going to sell. He now didn't need to sell because uh, I had recovered the position that he had um, vacated. And now he got. He then sold the company, if you think about it, to uh, David Vine at uh, a Polygram, who bought A&M and Ireland and paid ridiculous amount of money. He gave... Blackwell, 380 million or something. Uh, you know, it's probably worth 50 at the time. But uh, we fell out because also his people didn't pay Stiff's bills. They were due, we were a partnership. The accounts department all moved into Ireland. Every, every, we cut back and did all the things that people do. And uh, he double-crossed me. And then what about, didn't you have a contract for your percentage? Yeah, we had a contract written on a Filofax page. And we went to court with it, and it was going to cost an awful lot of money. I mean, Blackwell's lawyer called my lawyer and said, look, Chris has just sold the company for $289 million. Has Dave got the wherewithal to uh, get into a long, drawn-out uh, legal litigation? So we fought a bit of a draw. I got a bit out of it, but not what was required. And, of course, the sale of the companies never took place. And... Uh, uh, Chris went into the hotel business. Okay, you leave Ireland, and where does that leave you? It meant that everybody then assumed that uh, that stiff would be hard to keep going. So a lot of people then tried to think about to get their $200 or whatever they were owed. And in England, the way, the way that works, it snowballs. It's a snowballing situation. So I did a... Um, a liquidation. I liquidated the company and sold it to ZTT so that it was saleable, right? But um, it wasn't ideal. It wasn't something that you would write down as your script, whatever. Okay, you sold it to ZTT. Was that profitable for you? Did you finally get a check? No, no, it was profitable for the some of the creditors. They got a small amount of, the company was wound up. And they got a small amount of the owings. No, it wasn't profitable. I was the biggest creditor in the company. No, I, I lost what I put in. I put a lot in to try and keep it going. So what year do you give the assets? 86. And then what do you do personally? Well, I worked for Stiff for a while uh, until, the, um, until the Pogues single, which I, I signed the Pogues. 
So until the fairy tale in New York, and then I I uh, dropped out because Jill Sinclair, who is Trevor Horn's wife, or was unfortunately she was killed. She uh, was chiseling away at the bits that I had. So I thought I've had enough of it for a while. My wife and I thought we will take a little time off and go and do something fun. So what has occupied your time in these past years? I put together, and I hope to get that out next year, a Gregory Isaacs greatest hits called Icon. And that's, uh, I think, a great record. He, he wasn't quite the Bob Marley, but he had some great records, a great voice. And I look after a, a small band from uh, a young band from Carlisle in England called Hardwick Circus. And they're doing things and they're starting to do things and we're starting to get somewhere. So I'm still in it. I'm still doing it. I have a lot of fun doing it. And I do, um, you know, various bits in the industry and, you know, cooperate with several projects like greatest hits and things of that nature, which I'm good at. I have to ask, because it's a long career. I know this is not what you're in for it. So at this late date, did you make enough money or do you have to work to pay the bills? Oh, no, I have to work, uh, Bob. Yeah. And and you never retire. It's not, a you know, what would you do? Paul McCartney, when, uh, when I got Brinsley Schwartz to be their support band uh, on the Wings Tour of the UK, you know, I did a big three-day debrief with Paul at the back of the coach. And I said, so have you done enough? Uh, what are you, you going to do? What's the plan? Well, he said, Dave, you never retire because you're as successful as you can be. But what are you? I'm a bass player. What do you do? I said, well, I'm a kind of a manager. He said, well, we'll both be doing that till we die. Okay, just going back in history, one point. How long were you involved with Graham Parker? Graham Parker from um, 1975 to 1978, maybe 79. Okay, so were you involved with him when he signed ultimately with Arista, or was that after your time? I did the deal for him and left at that point. Okay, so Graham Parker, he had the first two albums made an incredible amount of notice. He blames it on Mercury, which certainly in America was a terrible label. Do you think it was just luck of the draw, it didn't happen for him, or really in the essence he didn't have it and it wasn't going to happen big time? There was a great momentum for Graham. There was a great momentum. Uh, at the time when he was playing in New York in the early, the Palladium period with Bruce Springsteen in the audience and Steve Van Zandt, he was at the height of his thing. He was, he was ready to crack it. Mercury were appalling. They had no real interest. They didn't have any interest in Phil Linnett, but that's, and that's his story. They just did not understand what it took to break a rock act in America. You had to climb on it. You had to climb on that bus and do it. They had a great guy and Mike Bone was a radio plugger. He was very good. But the marketing and the expenditure was was non-existent, really. It was it was poor, and they had no attitude. It was very much a jazz label, you know. And the guys that ran it, I'll tell you an interesting story. There was a guy called um, there was a guy from Barn in I, I I raised this big time right into Polygram, right? I raised it right up to the top of the cheese, right? And they sent a guy who remained nameless at this point, 
to Chicago and they paid my fare to go back to Chicago with him for uh, for me to point out what had happened, what hadn't happened, what should have happened. It's a very delicate situation. It happens in managers' careers from time to time when they don't want to... They need to get some action and it needs to be quick. And they understood that. When we had a lunch, when we had the dinner that evening, we all arrived, he from Holland, me from whatever. There was a girl, very pretty girl, introduced to me as the head of regional promotion. I had never seen her before. I asked Mike Bone, and he kind of put his eyes to heaven a little bit. This girl was seated next to my gentleman from Holland, Mr. Holland, right? And the following day, the Mr. Holland went back to Holland, and I'd checked at the hotel, and the girl had been in his room that night, and it was all over. He was moved to Australia thereafter by polygram, right? And it was all over. And Barnes said, we've investigated this. Our man says there's no untoward. You know, it's it's a chancy business, Dave. And uh, we had a chance and maybe we didn't. But Graham had such a such a very keen wave. He had such a keen wave. And he had some very, very good tracks, right? He had... Uh, Mutt Langer had done the second album, uh, Nick Lowe the first, Mutt Langer, and the third was uh, fant- squeezing out sparks. I mean, people really loved He had all the ingredients, but unfortunately, it's the momentum of the record business is that you seize the opportunities. They come and then they can go. And uh, like a lot of other things, So mercury poisoning is a very relevant part of why. Graham, it turned out, then changed his mind a little bit. He went off in slightly different directions. He also went, a lot of of, uh, groups, and you know this, they, they, they always need help and good from the management, and they need, they need people who are objective about them. And the day you drop the objectivity, is, is silly. Uh, the day that a, an artist is then asked to be the picker of the singles or the picker of the producer or whatever, I've never been a big fan with that. At the same time, I'm not autocratic. I, I tell the group why this is the situation and what could and should happen. I try and be the artist's friend as well as their record company, their partner. Most contracts say we are not partners and we never will be. I always said, I'm your partner. I will try and find the key to the door. If you support me, I will be with you. And Graham, unfortunately, was the back end of that. It's a shame because uh, if you look at some of the stuff he has done and look at some of those early videos, I mean, you're looking at a hit, at a hit act. Also, you know, the wave the wave moved and the punk kind of started coming up. Elvis Costello came, Bruce Springsteen started getting himself in gear and uh, Mercury denied Graham when he had a chance. Well, Dave, you're a fount of knowledge with a lot of great stories. I could listen to them forever. I want to thank you for taking the time with us today. Good, Bob. Well, I've, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsitz.
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 